0: welcome back to gen ed in this episode we're going to be having a little bit of a science geek talk um about it's actually from one of our previous um wave classes called dna and genomes and this uh class is actually taught by julia parsley so if you could please introduce yourself julia
1: Hi I'm Julia Parsley. I am a molecular biologist from Columbia University. Um, I've been working in biology labs for upwards of five years um, and I really enjoy talking about DNA whenever I get the chance. So thanks for having me.
2: So Julia how did you get into studying biology? How did you get into studying DNA and genomes?
1: Um, I was always really interested in uh, human medicine and uh, like the biology of humans. So I, ever since I was a kid, I kind of was interested in anatomy and stuff like that. And then when I got to high school, I kind of transitioned into being more interested in cells and cellular life and you know uh, the things that are microscopic that we can't see. Because that was all I didn't really know much about that until I took my first biology class, and I became really obsessed with it. Um, and uh, my high school actually had a program where you could join like a lab research lab in the high school. Um, And so I joined one of them for fun, and I got really uh, invested in molecular genetics, which is the study of DNA and genomes. Um, And that's kind of how it all started, and I just kept going on that path. And now, you know, university, I spent a lot of time in different molecular genetics labs, and now I'm where I am.
0: Oh, nice. So what was the research that you did in high school
1: Sure. Um, So I was uh, in a lab that was called the stem cell lab, which is funny because we didn't do any stem cell research. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Um, There was no stem cells. (laughs) I did uh, research on neurons. So um, it was kind of random. I was just kind of looking for, honestly, there was no like thought process behind this. I just, we had certain materials. And so I went through like a list of the different DNA plasmids we had. I was looking for genes I could study. And I found one that related to neurons called alpha synuclein. And I decided to do a project looking into uh, the uh, role of alpha-synuclein in neuron death. So in um, certain diseases like Parkinson's, there's an issue with alpha-synuclein. It's a protein. It aggregates and stops working. Um, and it was never really clear if that was linked to neuron death or not. So I decided to investigate that and see if I messed up you know, the amounts of alpha-synuclein in the cells, if they would stop functioning correctly. And that's what I worked on there. I don't work on neurons anymore. But uh Yeah.
2: You were definitely way more involved in high school than I was <laughs> doing way cooler <laughs> stuff. Um, it I made doubt me it. Think, <laughs> Clearly it was go-getters like you who were going out and researching things, you know, that that got us to where we are right now in our understanding of a lot of fields <laughs> of science and, and otherwise. Could you talk a little bit about how we – discovered what we've discovered how we how we discovered dna
1: oh sure um okay so the earliest experiments that i know about with respect to the biological role of dna are from uh have you heard of like hershey chase so i don't know the exact experiments that led to the discovery of dna as a molecule i'm supposing that's probably more to do with chemistry and chemical biology than really the biology side of things but dna was identified as the uh, genetic material back in the middle of the 20th century with the Hershey Chase experiments. People were, um, if you've ever heard of bacteriophages, bacteriophages are these viruses that can infect bacteria. And the experiment was, um, there, there was a debate in the science community about whether or not DNA or protein was the genetic material. And bacteriophages or bacteria viruses are made of both a protein shell and a DNA core So what these scientists did was they labeled the shell and the core with different uh, radioactive tags and mixed the uh, labeled virus with bacteria and then separated the two to see what ended up inside of the bacteria. And that was how they figured out what was the genetic material. And that was the moment at which it was understood that DNA was the genetic material for living organisms. So I'd say that's when like DNA from a biological standpoint was quote unquote discovered. Um, And the structure of DNA was subsequently discovered. uh, The Watson and Crick experiments. (laughs) Watson and Crick. I mean, like, okay, like, yes, they, like, (laughs) did the whole, you know, they figured out from the X-ray crystallography picture that that was the structure, but they didn't take the picture. It's Rosalind Franklin who took the picture. That was, like, the, in my opinion, I mean like not that I really should have an opinion cuz I'm 20, but in my opinion that was like the biggest tragedy. Like oh my freaking god, this woman took the picture of the DNA. She died. Like did you know Rosalind Franklin not only got screwed by her colleague Maurice Wilkins who gave the picture to Watson and Crick because he didn't like her, but then she died of cancer because of the x-ray experiments. Oh, <laughs> and then so they won tragic. the Nobel Prize like, without her being credited <laughs> at all. Like, it's just like, wow. Yeah, but that was when the structure of DNA was discovered. Um, that was a humongous deal because then we, you know, it's like, think about it this way. Like, if you know, time travel is not a thing that we have. It's like a crazy science, you know, sci-fi idea. But if people figured out how to do that, like, it would be mind-blowing. And in, this, in the same way, understanding the structure of DNA, like, looking at the molecule that tells us how to exist was kind of this, like, mind-blowing like god moment you know um and what was even more exciting to i think in my opinion is um, the human genome project which subsequently uh came to light after that it was this huge race over like a period of like several decades to sequence the entire human genomes like put yourself in their position like we just discovered the genetic material we didn't even know what carried the information to make living organisms and now we are going to uh read our own genome like that's that's like it's just
0: it's it's like time it's like the biological equivalent of time travel it's just ridiculous so could you explain a little bit like what a genome is for those who are listening and don't know sure um so a genome
1: is the collection of all heritable genetic information in an organism that's needed to produce and sustain the organism so all of the dna in your cells that has the information to make you Um, That includes the stuff that's in your nucleus, which is, I mean, human genome is humongous. I think it's like 3 billion base pairs or something. Um, And also the mitochondrial DNA. Uh, Basically, it's all of the uh, encoded information needed to make something that's alive. Uh, You'd be surprised if you think about what's in a genome. You'd think that your body uses everything in the genome all the time but actually there are certain things in there certain genes and programs that are only used at certain parts in your life some things are expressed when you're an embryo that are never used again um so yeah i hope that makes sense
2: so my question is how do we you know you you said that genomes are kind of what what make us us you know they they contain all the information that that creates us how do we go from from these storage units of information to those expressing themselves in a person in the most podcast friendly way possible. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Hi, you're asking about the central dogma. Yeah. So um, how is DNA used? that's a good question uh oftentimes when people try and explain that they say it in this way that i hate they say like dna is like a library and the cell reads the books and like you know makes a recipe or whatever the hell like how, what the hell is that supposed to mean what cells have eyes and they can cook things like i never <laughs> understood that um so the way it works actually is your cell can read um which is odd to think about but it's possible so what happens is a uh, all of your dna is in your nucleus um and there's genes in that dna and it, you, you probably are wondering how the cell could tell where genes are in a long string of DNA. Um, remember DNA is like, it's a, it's a polymer. So it's a, it's a chain of repeating units. Uh, there are four, it's like, it's like a necklace. There are beads on the string. And the beads are these uh, unit molecules called nucleotides and they're strung together in a chain um, with a very specific order to them. There's four different types of nucleotides. And the order of the nucleotides is what confers information upon the DNA polymer. You can have unique orders, and just by conceptually, different orders of these contain different information, kind of like binary in a computer. Um, and there are certain patterns that can tell you, it tells the cell when, when a gene is starting. So the cell can see that. Um, it, certain things in the cell can recognize that. Um, and when, that, when that's recognized, uh, what will happen is um, the cell will make a molecule called RNA. So there's certain tools in the cell that will recognize the beginning of a gene, and they'll make RNA. RNA looks like DNA, except it's shorter and can leave the nucleus. So it's you know it's a way of photocopying the DNA. And that leaves, it goes into the main part of the cell called the cytoplasm, which is anything outside of the nucleus. And then there's this unit called the ribosome, which is this humongous like complex of molecules, which can take an RNA molecule, which is just a copy of a DNA sequence, and it can read it. And it does this using the Rosetta Stone of biology, tRNAs, or translation RNAs, um, or transfer RNAs. God, edit that out. Translation RNAs. Who am I? <laughs> God, I've been studying this for like years. It's transfer <laughs> RNAs. I'm not stupid. I promise. It's okay. Some days, it's translation, so- <laughs> the process of translation. You know? All good. Yeah. No. I swear, I know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> t- transfer RNAs. Uh, transfer RNAs. Um, have uh they're made of rna so they can base pair with the rna molecule and recognize certain combinations of nucleotides and uh each transfer rna has a specific amino acid that it's attached to so it like it's like um it's like a what do you call it you know uh you ever have like a, a something that's written in code and you have like one of those code wheels and you can like match like a code letter to like you know an actual letter in english that's what a transfer rna is like it matches a, a, a you know nucleotide sequence to an amino acid and that's how a gene is is uh, read by the cell and turned into a protein. Um, and on a, if you wanna think about that on a grander scale, uh, so that's, that's the, that process happens on a very large macrologic scale with pretty much everything in your genome over periods of time to give rise to you. So different sequences of DNA, depending on who you are and what versions of each gene you have, give rise to slightly different proteins that give you different characteristics, like your height, your hair color, your eye color, um, whether or not you're gonna get cancer, that kind of thing.
0: I actually have a joke. I think I heard it in, like, a crash course from Hank Green once. But it's, um what does um, the enzyme helicase and a teenage boy have in common? They want to unzip and
1: your he- genes. Is that it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've <laughs> heard that so many times. <laughs> I don't know why.
1: I think I just follow way too many, like, stupid, weird TikToks that I have to do with science. So that one's, like, a very popular one. That one and the whole, like uh, – Yeah, I've heard the unzip your genes one a lot. What's the other one I've heard? Oh, God. Oh, significant figure. You have one significant figure. That's another good one. (laughs) God. Yeah, I know.
0: Okay. So down, like, the whole, like, different genomes and, um, like, I guess with mutations and the mistakes happen with, like, coding these, like, different genes and stuff, um, like, why do different diseases and disorders, like, happen? And is there, like, a way to, like, prevent it from happening?
1: Oh, that's a really broad question. It depends. <laughs> like, every disorder – I mean, like, it, it really depends. A lot of uh, genetic diseases – okay, I'll just give you a couple of examples. I don't know. Some genetic diseases arise because of a mutation in the genome that leads to a non-functional protein. Like, uh, for instance, sickle cell anemia. There's a mutation in a protein that uh gives rise – I think it substitutes – an amino acid for a valine or something there's like a specific amino acid substituted for another one it's one single point mutation and it leads to a version of this protein that um, is like erroneously shaped and leads to the cells being very rigid and sickle shaped um, so sometimes there's like a mutation that changes the structure of the protein and that can change the way that the cell behaves a lot of diseases result from that um, other times there are different types there's different there's many There's different types of genetic issues that can happen that can lead to diseases manifesting from different mechanisms. So one of them is just straight up, the protein doesn't work right anymore. Like in sickle cell anemia and like in many cancers, a lot of time in cancers, you'll have a mutation in an important gene that keeps cells from dividing when they're not supposed to. And that gene will no longer produce a functional protein unless you you, you are predisposed to cancer and will eventually develop cancer. That's one category of like genetic disease, just the protein doesn't work anymore. Another one, is uh, an issue with splicing. So, uh, if you uh, if you ever studied RNA processing, you'll know of a process called alternative splicing. So, an mRNA. So, when a, when an RNA is made from DNA, when this photocopy is made, um, you get this thing called a pre-mRNA. That's what we call the initial nascent, which is like the biology word for like new, like just born the initial nascent RNA, um, and it goes through a bunch of stuff before it leaves the nucleus to go be translated. And one of those processes is uh, alternative splicing or just sometimes it's just called splicing. Um, so parts of the RNA are important and other parts need to be disposed of. Not all of it is, is, a, is a, the protein message. It's confusing. You'd wonder why the cell does that. And if you want, I can talk about that. But uh, I'm just going to talk about the process now. So what the cell does is it, it finds the parts of this RNA that are not important for the protein message and cuts them out and pastes together the important parts. Sometimes if you have mu- if you have a mutation in one of the unimportant parts, they're called introns, the parts that need to be taken out, that can affect the way, that can affect whether or not the cell can recognize the intron. And you end up with a a bad splicing pattern that leads to a bad protein product. So like, you know, that's another example of how an a issue with the genetic code can lead to an issue with the production of protein. Instead of just making a, a bad protein, you now have the protein message, the actual exons, the, the code for the protein is fine, but the the way that the cell can process its own information is, is screwed up because the introns have issues. It's, so like there's different levels at which you can have um, a mechanistic failure that will lead to disease. Sometimes uh, people will have issues with DNA methylation, if you've heard of that, or like histone acetylation. So that's epigenetics. Uh, you're not even, not even an issue with your DNA. Sometimes just your cells will have transient um, mistakes in the way that they annotate. The chromatin which is a mixture of dna and protein um, they'll have mistakes in the way they annotate their own genome uh, temporarily and that can lead to diseases like cancer uh, so yeah i hope that kind of gives you an idea of how broad this is it's not like there's one mechanism by which you can get a disease because of some kind of genetic issue
2: so when you're talking about that and when i've thought about this in the past in my biology classes I always think about just how many moving parts there are. You know, I think kind of like an engineer and I'm like something, there are so many moving parts, something's going to break. They And it. it's so broad that in my mind, it seems like things would break pretty often. Um, so how do our, how do our genes and our um, bodies deal with mutations? How do we stop them from happening? And, do they yeah do do we try to stop them from happening can we stop them from happening
1: <laughs> mutations uh yeah so it's interesting there's a lot of different ways that your cell has to to uh help itself when there's issues with its DNA so um it's there's a lot of that we call them redundancies so your cells have a lot of backup mechanisms in case something fails because you're right there are a lot of moving parts it's immense it's like, it's kind of like a It's kind of like a, I don't know, I think of a lot of biology as like a junk drawer. Like it's just kind of a total freaking mess and it kind of just works. You know, it's like (laughs) a Rube Goldberg machine. It shouldn't work. It's totally a roundabout way to do things. But it's it's formed by evolution, which is just a process of randomness. So like, of course, it's kind of a mess. Um, But there's a lot of redundancies that make sure that your DNA usually will stay fine. So like, for instance, when your cells are dividing, your whole genome will get replicated you'd think that would be a very error-prone process, but actually it's not because your polymerase has something called, um, the polymerase is the protein that replicates your DNA and makes, your, makes a copy of your genome when your cells are dividing. Um, it has The polymerase itself has an ability called proofreading. Uh, it can recognize when it's put the wrong nucleotide into the new genome and go back, cut it out, and replace it with the right one. So that's one way in which your cell avoids mutations. Um But, you know, you might be thinking, okay, but there are other ways in which cells sustain mutations, like coming into contact with certain chemicals or UV light. And you're right, uh, that can introduce lesions. We call them lesions, uh, like chemical issues within the DNA molecule that can lead to mutation. Uh, The way the cell deals with that is different. There are many different DNA repair pathways. When there's a lesion in the DNA, the cell will go and find it and repair it. Um, And I'd say probably the most... um, What's what's the word? Probably the most uh, like uh, uh, the, you know efficient one that really leads to an accurate repair is homologous recombination. So if you are in uh, the phase in which your cell has already replicated its genome, it's called S phase. Um, there's a, then there's a copy of every single sequence. So if there's an issue with one of the sequences, the cell can recognize because of UV light or whatever. Um, it will um, use the copied DNA, which it assumes to be correct because it was copied before the lesion existed to fix the uh, screwed up portion of the DNA. So that's another way in which your cell can avoid mutations. There's also things such as nucleotide excision repair. So if a nucleotide itself is screwed up and doesn't match, your cell will cut it out and replace it with the right one. Like it'll just find this so, like, you know, in case the polymerase doesn't do proofreading correctly, if the cell notices there's a bulge in the DNA helix because there's a mismatch, it will go in, remove the nucleotide that's, you know, bulged out, and replace it with the correct one. So, like, that's, an, you know, those are some examples of the way in which your cell will avoid um, having, you know, sustaining mutations. And then, in the case in which your cell does sustain a mutation, which happens all the time, I guarantee you, there are lots of cells in your body that have a different genome from the rest of them just because of mutations. Um, if your cell does sustain a mutation that is dangerous, like it leads to precancerous characteristics, oftentimes there are other proteins in the cell that will recognize that the cell is acting in a dangerous way that is not uh, typical and it will kill itself. Uh, so, one of these is P53. P53 is a protein that can recognize DNA damage um, at certain points in the cell cycle, which is like the life cycle of a cell. And when it recognizes that, it will trigger um, a cascade of uh, that eventually leads to apoptosis, which is a fancy word for programmed cell death. So you know, when uh, like worst comes to worst, your cell commits suicide. Like, (laughs) but yeah, it's very, it's actually really hard for your cells to get away with having a dangerous mutation. If it wasn't, we'd all have cancer.
2: I just yep. wanted to jump in real quick and say that multiple um, terms and processes that um, brought that were brought up by you were also brought up in my AP Biology class, and I understand them much better after like five or ten minutes here than I ever did in AP Bio.
1: <laughs> really? I'm from a, a surprise. Thank you. It makes me feel really nice. I didn't know I was explaining this well. So thanks. <laughs> That's and Dan, a huge compliment. He doesn't like
0: biology either. He likes physics. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! You them. <laughs> i know
1: oh lord what are we gonna do with him all right well
0: yeah i think i just find like cancer to be so interesting and there are even backups to like preventing cancer i find like the tumor suppressor genes and then the oncogenes like proteins are amazing love proteins um But I'm getting sidetracked a little bit. Um, what are some like new discoveries, um, recent or those you think are significant, like regarding like DNA and genomes and like how we like combat some of these um problems? Like, I'm sorry, can you say that last part again? You cut out. Um, just like how we're um trying to combat um different diseases and um problems like cancer and any um upcoming or discoveries you found oh sure i'll just tell you
1: about a bunch of things that i think are interesting um so okay give me a minute to think about this so there's a bunch of interesting like new things that are happening i'll tell you about some things that are relatively new but not super new and i'll tell you some super new things so one thing that has kind of been known for a little while but is like in the grand scheme of things relatively new is this concept of epigenetic inheritance so let me explain epigenetics for a minute Epigenetics, I kind of mentioned this before, but I'm going to kind of really explain what it is now. So you have your DNA in your nucleus, right? And that has your genetic you know, code in it, sequence of nucleotides. You can't alter that unless you have a mutation. That's That stays the same. But when your cell experiences something, like it comes into contact with a certain chemical or it goes through a very stressful period in its life, um, proteins in the cell will go into the nucleus and they'll annotate the DNA with temporary chemical markers to like, kind of help the cell remember certain things. Um, and it helps the cell adapt to its surroundings and survive. Um, that's called epigenetics. It's like this temporary, um, temporary addition to the DNA in the nucleus. It's not, it's not permanent. Um, but what was found um, recently, somewhat recently, and not that recently, is that when your cells divide, so when when some cell splits, you know, through mitosis to form a daughter cell, um, the DNA is copied to make a new genome, but the epigenetic annotations are also copied every time. So the daughter cell remembers what the mother cell went through. And this is true for every cell in your body always, except for your gametes, your gametes are your sex cells. They, they lose all epigenetic patterns that the the embryo that is formed can start fresh, but all your somatic cells or your body cells experience epigenetic inheritance. So your cells can remember what their ancestors experienced. That's incredible, I mean, like you know something can happen to you when you're a child, some kind of thing on the biochemical and molecular level in your body, and as you know as you age, your adult cells are affected by that. this has implications in, you know in many different types of uh, like you know, diseases and stuff whether or not certain you know, through epigenetic inheritance, whether that can predispose you to certain conditions, you know, if you've been experiencing something earlier in your life, like if you smoke, whether or not that can, ex- you know, predispose you to cancers, not necessarily through the carcinogens, but also through the effect that like, um, the different chemicals can have on the epigenetics of your cells. Like you see how this gets immensely more complicated, but I just thought that was when I learned about that for the first time, it blew my mind because it's like cells can remember things.
2: <laughs> I don't know. So that's
1: something interesting. Um, another thing i mean i can tell you about what i work on so currently i work on something called alternative polyadenylation so polyadenylation is something that happens to nascent rnas as well so there's alternative splicing and then there's polyadenylation so when an rna is made like when when the dna is being photocopied and you make one you know new rna molecule at the very end of it you have to put on something called the poly a tail basically instead of just having like you know the end of the message. Uh the cell decides to add like three hundred adenines just all in a string, and we thought it was, we we know it's there for several reasons. One of them is to protect the end of the RNA from uh, certain proteins that like to chew up ends of RNA so that you don't chew up the end of the protein message but also uh something we found recently is that uh you can cut and put the tail on the end of the RNA in multiple different places, so sometimes uh the cell will chop off a portion of the end of the RNA, um, and then put a tail on. Um, so, you know, you end up getting like, how do I explain this better? Um, okay, when you're polyadenylating an RNA, it's not like the RNA stops being formed, comes out of the, the polymerase, and then gets a tail. It's cut as it's coming out of the polymerase. And as it's cut, it, a tail is added. And that's how a transcription or formation of an RNA ends. You always have to cut the RNA out of the polymerase or else the polymerase won't stop making RNA. Um, But we found recently that you can cut RNA messages in different places, depending on certain factors and stuff that's happening inside of the cell. Um, And interestingly, uh, where you cut RNA messages on average, whether you cut them really early in the message or really late in the message, uh, correlates really nicely with the stem cell differentiation and whether or not a cell is pluripotent. Um, And we don't really understand stem cell differentiation very well. But uh, this is interesting because it seems to be important to whether or not a cell can be pluripotent. Um, So I'm studying uh, the mechanism by which um, these polyadenylation choices are made uh, in cells of different pluripotency um, in order to determine, uh, you know, like the biological mechanism of this behavior and also whether or not it can be, uh, whether or not understanding it can be used to better um understand stem cell biology and differentiate stem cells in a more controlled manner i mean we still have so many issues with trying to differentiate stem cells even today it's a pain in the ass you have to buy like 15 million chemicals um and they're so expensive and you still get a yield of like you know 50 percent at the most it's a pain um, so if we could do it in a way that's, like, kind of uh, centralized and modular, you know, with, like, one prin- underlying principle, it would be a lot easier. So perhaps this is it. Perhaps this isn't it. But that's something newer. It's kind of complicated but interesting. Um, what else is interesting? Let me think about this for a minute here. CRISPR is interesting. Do you want me to talk about that? Have you – how many – do you like CRISPR? Some people like CRISPR. Some people hate CRISPR. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm pro-CRISPR. <laughs> But but maybe I mean, but maybe uh, you have insights to to convince me otherwise.
1: <laughs> to convince you that sucks. I mean, I like CRISPR. It's really useful. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I'm sure people who are listening to this have probably heard of CRISPR. And if you haven't, don't worry, because now you've heard of it, so you're in the loop again. Um, so <laughs> CRISPR, CRISPR. Mean, if you've heard of it, uh, you, probably, you probably have heard of it in the context of like genetically engineered babies or whatever. Like that's not typically what people, I mean, that one guy in China decided <laughs> to do that, but that's not typically what people are using it for. Uh, but CRISPR is a system that uh, allows us to edit DNA in a really controlled manner. So uh, I'll tell you where it comes from. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Um, it is uh, about, it's, it's, it's bacterial immune system. So bacteria have their own immune systems, which is weird to think about, because in humans, the immune system is cellular. We have B cells and T cells and, you know, macrophages, and those keep us safe from different types of microorganisms. But bacteria are unicellular organisms. So if they have an immune system, it has to be within one cell. It can't be a cell within a cell, because that wouldn't make sense. Um, It turns out that CRISPR is their version of an immune system. Uh, CRISPR keeps them safe from viruses. So... Um, in bacteria, the, the wild type or the like, you know, normal state of CRISPR, not the engineered DNA editing version, um, is uh, there's a portion of the bacterial genome um, that consists of these palindromic repeats. Um, and what happens is when the bacteria is infected by a virus, the cell can recognize that the virus materi- the virus DNA is foreign, um, and it will cut it up and put it into this uh, palindromic repeat part of the, of the genome. Um, and then what will happen is the cell will, uh, transcribe into RNA, this, this palindromic part of the genome, along with all of the little pasted viral pieces of DNA in there, it will transcribe it into an RNA message, cut up that RNA, and then you'll get a bunch of little RNA photocopies of each of those little snippets of viral DNA from different viruses. Um, so now you have this like pool of uh, copies of viral DNA that the cell has encountered before. Um, what will happen now is that there's this protein inside of the cell called Cas. It's Cas9, sometimes it's Cas9, sometimes it's Cas8, depends on the bacteria. Cas will pick up those RNA photocopies and it will go around the cell like a hitman looking for DNA that is foreign, that rec- that matches those RNA photocopies. And when it finds that, it will cut it up. And that's how the bacteria has, um, it ha, can protect itself from viruses that it's seen before. So in case you want to know where CRISPR came from, um, and the CRISPR that people are talking about right now is not that, you know, what can we do with the, you know, bacterial immune system? It's, it's an engineered version of that. So what happened is these two scientists, uh, Jennifer Doudna and, uh, Emmanuel Charpentier, um, took that system from bacteria. Um, and they, uh, engineered it in a lab to work in human cells so what they did was they took out they put cas9 into human cells so now human cells can make the cas9 protein which can uh you know grab it the cas9 can grab an rna find dna that matches the rna and cut it so cas9 is in human cells and then what they did was they like from scratch engineered or like made up an rna molecule that will fit inside of cas9 and is customizable so that uh the part of the sequence that You know recognizes dna can be whatever you want um so now we have a system that works in human cells that uh, can recognize virtually any sequence of dna in a very specific manner and cut it and that's what crispr is and crispr allows us to since we can cut dna in certain places it allows us to like put things into dna in certain places because if you can cut the dna open you can put something in there it allows us to cut things out of the dna like genes we don't want and that's why it's referred to as like this DNA editing software, because, um, you know, you can put it into a cell and put whatever kind of custom RNA you want in there and use that to cut up whatever portion of the cell's genome you want. So you can cut out things and put things in there and whatever. Um, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And that, you know, it was used to engineer human babies once, but that didn't end too well for that man. So I don't recommend <laughs> doing that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's definitely the whole ethical issue with like genetic editing and correction and stuff. Yeah, that was totally insane. I was t- um.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's funny. In in the two biology classes I took in like high school and mid- in middle school, we always had a unit on like talking about like CRISPR and other th- things like that and just talking about like the controversies of like modern biology which is really interesting because you know you don't see that in many <laughs> in many like academic fields you don't take a math class and learn about controversial new formulas <laughs> people are making controversial um, math. i'm sorry <laughs> and <laughs> um and like kind of in that vein like what i mean we've we've Obviously, touched on CRISPR a little bit and how people get up in arms about, you know, genetically modified humans and genetically modified foods. Um, are there other kind of ethical issues that modern bi- uh, that modern biology um, is running into as it continues to discover? Um, New things?
1: That's a good question. Um, Yeah, so like there's a couple of things I can think of. Like, I mean, stem cells in and of themselves are difficult. I mean, the the, uh, discovery of induced pluripotent stem cells has made them much easier to work with because now instead of uh, using, you know, embryonically derived stem cells, those are harder to get because you need a human embryo. Um, you know, you can take like a patient's skin sample and turn that into stem cells. Uh, but stem cells are kind of difficult to work with, not only because of the stigma surrounding them, because of the earlier experiments using like human embryos, but because of um, the issue with implanting stem cells into a person. Like, there, I think there are probably some FDA approved treatments, and I'm sure those are fine. But uh, stem cells themselves are controversial clinically because uh, it's hard to control what they will turn into. So you might put a stem cell into a person, into their spine, and think, oh, you know, that'll fix their spinal, like, injury, because, you know, it'll turn to nerve cells. But uh, oftentimes, you could you'll put a stem cell into a person, and uh, even though you intend for it to turn to, like, a nerve cell, it can turn into a nerve cell and a muscle cell and, like, you know, a skin cell, and, like, it, it'll, like, it'll turn to a bunch of different things, and it can give you tumors. So stem cells are kind of uh, difficult, I'd say, and there's a lot of, uh controversy around like, you know, how best to derive them. Um, how best to differentiate them in order to make um, the treatments of the patients as safe as they can be. I'm not saying that they're dangerous. The ones that are approved by the FDA in America are definitely fine because the FDA is a pain in the ass to get through. But like, you know, I wouldn't suggest going to like Turkey to get some kind of like, you know, under the table stem cell operation. I don't think that will end for you. So like, just be smart about that, I guess. And <laughs> another thing that's kind of controversial that uh, is, I don't know if it's really a thing right now. I mean, it's not as big as it used to be. is gene therapy. So but there was back in like the late 20th century gene therapy was a mm-hmm. humongous field um and it, it gene therapy is the idea that you can give patients uh pieces of DNA that uh have like replacements for genes that they don't have the, they don't have so like you know you might have like um i might be missing the gene for a certain protein like either i just don't have it because of a deletion or it's mutated um and the idea in gene therapy is a doctor could give me by by some mechanism a replacement of that gene that works really well um, and this was something that was used for cystic fibrosis. If you've heard of that disease, it's a disease in which there's a mutation in a specific transporter. It's a, it's a, there's a protein transporter at the membrane. There's a mutation in it. So the cells accumulate certain ions, and you end up getting uh, an issue with the, os- like the osmotic um, environment around the cells. And so what ends up happening is the mucus that um, lies on top of epithelia ends up becoming extremely thick um, because there's not enough water in it. And it can give you a very severe lung disease that usually leads to death in the late 20s, early 30s. Um, and, you know, since it's one gene, which is the issue, and it t- really affects the lungs the most, um, it was a great candidate for gene therapy because what you could do is you could put the, the correct version of the gene into, like, a virus. You could take out the viral genome, so that the virus no longer can make more of itself. So now you just have the viral, you know, capsid, which is like the, like, uh, what's the good word for this? It's like the like envelope for the virus. You know, envelope is another viral term. I don't mean the like lipid envelope. I mean like it's like, you know, this is how you mail the virus to its destination using its capsid. If you take out the viral genome, it's not infectious anymore. It won't hurt you. But you can still use the capsid to get whatever's inside of the capsid into whatever place you want to go. So what people would do is they take a viral capsid, take out the genome, put in the correct version of the cystic fibrosis related gene, and then have like a patient breathe in this engineered virus. Now, when the patient would breathe in this engineered virus, the virus would, quote unquote, infect its lung cells and inject into them, instead of a viral genome, um, the correct version of this gene. And supposedly they'd get better. But what actually ended up happening was uh, there was this one boy, can't remember his name, um, and he went to get this treatment done. They were using an adenovirus vector and he had a really bad reaction to it. Might have had to do something with like the immunogenicity of adenovirus and ended up dying like the day he got the treatment so that became highly controversial because the clinical trials were being handled correctly um you know to have that kind of mistake and it was shut down for years so I, those are the two controversial things i can think of i mean like like as uh, theoretically like compared to CRISPR, like ethically these are like less controversial but like in the realm of patient safety um they're very new and uh not entirely understood so that's Way they're controversial because you could, it is, there are high, they are high risk, these kinds of clinical trials. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, that does. And they're also doing like immunotherapy with cancer and stuff. I just find it really interesting that that whole clinical trial failed because it seemed like a good idea.
1: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, like, there's a lot of, you know, I I think like probably in the next 20 years there's going to be a humongous like the way we do medicine is probably going to be completely different hopefully I mean, like, I don't know. maybe at least we'll have universal health care or something because the lord knows i can't afford to go to the doctor ever so, like,
2: yeah. you'll you'll be researching the cures and then not be able to afford
1: literally them. yeah i'll invent some kind of drug and then i'll need it and i'll be able to get it so, that's how it feels sometimes <laughs> uh
0: Ugh. and then there's big pharma but big pharma let's, <laughs> let's not nah. get into that because that's a whole, a whole other whole podcast <laughs> <over again. laughs> oh, yeah
2: that's a whole series of podcasts yeah. <laughs> um well I, I think we're about out of time julia um it's been super awesome having you here this has been a super awesome discussion I, as Alana mentioned earlier, I'm not a big biology guy, but that was really interesting and really clarifying. So I thank you a lot for that.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I really enjoy talking about this stuff. So yeah, no, thanks for listening to me talk for like a good 40 minutes. It's it's usually only lasts like five minutes, my friends. And they're like, okay, we're done. We don't want to hear about science anymore. So thanks for indulging me. All right. Hey,
0: well, thank you again. I really enjoyed it, but I'm also science biased. <laughs> so, um, so as this podcast comes to an end, um, please check out other wave courses just like this one, and give Julia a big thanks. And I will see you next week.